I don't know about you, but every time I hear the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, I am transported to some of the happiest and hardest moments of my life. We sang that song at Kurt and I's wedding, and we sang that song at the hardest funerals I've ever sat through. But it doesn't change, because it's true in happy times and joyful times and in the worst moments of our life, because God is always faithful. Amen? Amen. And this morning, if you haven't caught on yet, <laughs> we're starting a two-week series on the faithfulness of God, what it means and what it looks like for God to be faithful. This week, we'll be diving into a New Testament example of that. And next week, Pastor Kathy will be talking to us about it, what it looks like from the Old Testament. But before we dive into our scripture, before we look at New or Old Testament, I think it's important that we address something. We need to have a right understanding of what faithfulness on God's part means before we can even come to talk about the fact that God is faithful to us. Because if you and I come to the table with differing concepts of what faithfulness is, we're gonna come to different conclusions as to whether or not God is actually faithful. So if you look at this formula up here, however imperfect it is, I think it gives us an idea of how we as individuals come to understand whether or not God is faithful. We take our definition of faithfulness and we add it up to God's actions and then we say that determines whether or not I believe God is faithful. Let's look at an example to try and figure this out. How many of you have ever been here for a wedding? at Orchard Hill. Okay, lots of us. So we probably won't have a hard time imagining this. A groom stands here, a bride stands here, and they come together to make their vows of faithfulness before their friends, their family, and their God. When the groom comes, he says, I take blah, blah, blah to blah, blah, blah for the rest of my life and to promise to be faithful. And he's smiling because he means it with his whole heart. When the groom vows to be faithful to his bride-to-be, this groom is standing here, and to him he is saying, I vow to submit to you mutually out of reverence for Christ. I vow, bride, with my whole heart to not give my mind, my emotions, or my body to another for the rest of our lives. I vow to put your needs before mine. I vow to put your sanctification and your purification in Christ before everything else in our lives. That is the vow of faithfulness this groom is making to his bride this day. That's all well and good. <laughs> but the issue stands when the bride comes before her groom, and that is not what she hears when he says, I vow to be faithful. Because these two have come to the altar on this day with different definitions of what they mean by faithful. This is what our groom is talking about. Our bride hears him say faithful and expects, he's going to be faithful to me. He will give me everything I want. Every year we'll go to Jamaica. He'll make every desire and whim I have in my life his top priority. He will be my sugar daddy, and we will have a happy life of safety and protection together. If they both live out their definitions of faithfulness that they truly mean with all of their hearts, 
Are they going to have a smooth relationship? Probably not. Maybe some of you are saying no out of experience. I hope not. But they're probably not going to get off on a right foot or be able to do life together in this relationship very well because they came to the table with different concepts of faithfulness. And while we laugh, I think it's something that should cause us a little bit of holy fear because church, you and I are the bride of Jesus Christ and our groom stands before us and has pledged his faithfulness to us through his blood and his life on the cross. He has promised to put our sanctification and our holiness and our purity as the radiant bride of Christ above everything else. And yet we stand here like the ditzy bride and expect that Jesus Christ is going to fulfill every whim and desire of our hearts. We expect God, our Savior, to save us from a life of difficulty. We stand here hearing in the groom's promise of perfect faithfulness, a life of health, wealth, and prosperity, of protection and perfection in this earthly life. And just like the original bride, we could not be more wrong. That is not what the holy groom promises to his bride when he promises her to be faithful. When we look at the scripture, we see a definition of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness can be defined as this. God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Do the words, I am who I am, ring a bell in your head right now? Numbers puts it like this for us. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not make it good? God cannot betray himself. God is going to be exactly who he has promised to be through his, to his people through generations and throughout his word. He will never go back on that promise. He will be good. He will be loving. He will be jealous for you. He will be faithful to sanctify you and to bring you to salvation in him. And he will do what he says he will do. And now the other half of God's faithfulness, we see it in 1 Thessalonians. It says, may, the, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He promises to make you into who he has asked you to be and to give you what you need to do what he has called you to do. That is the covenant of faithfulness we see all over scripture. And that is what our God is standing at the altar vowing to us with his life and his blood to say, bride, to you, I will be faithful. It's not about our whims and our wants. It's about a holy God making his holy bride radiant and giving her everything she needs to do the impossible mission that he has called her to do. So with that definition of faithfulness, let's go into our scripture for today. 
Turn with me, if you would, to Mark 6. We're going to start reading in verse 30. My guess is this is a familiar passage to most of you, but my hope is that you hear it with new ears today. The feeding of the 5,000. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By the time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months' wages. Are we going to spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. So we begin our story from the disciples coming fresh off the mission field, right? Jesus has sent them out two by two into towns and villages to declare repentance from sins, to cast out demons. They were healing people. These men, these 12, had been hard at work in the ministry of the kingdom. And when they came back excitedly telling Jesus all that they had done, Jesus looked at them and said, you need a rest, disciples. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. They've been doing good, intense kingdom work. But it says there were so many people in the towns and villages around them desiring healing, desiring to hear truth, desiring just to be around them that they couldn't even eat a meal. Introverts, does that make you a little uncomfortable? (laughs) Are you ready for a break yet (laughs) from people? (laughs) Okay, that's enough. (laughs) But even if you're not introverted, if you were a person who was doing ministry in the kingdom of God, Jesus sees you're going to need some rest and rejuvenation. He's the one that calls it out himself, and so he invites his disciples to come away to a quiet and desolate place where they can get some rest. And so Jesus and this exhausted 12 get into a boat, and they set sail for the other side of the lake, hoping to find some solitude. That was the plan. Anyway, you see, the word had gotten out about Jesus. People had come from near and far. The text tells us 5,000 people. 
5,000 people is almost double the population of the surrounding towns. It's not like, hey, some people in Grand Rapids heard this cool thing was happening, let's all go to a concert at Van Andel. It was everyone from this town, everyone from this town, and then double that many people had come to hear Jesus. So the word had gotten out. So they get across the lake and expect to find a desolate, rejuvenating place, and instead they see a hungry, desperate mass of people maybe more people than they had ever seen in one place in their lives. They glimpsed the exhausted team and get in the, get in the boat, and they ran. They sprinted. This isn't just like a 100-meter dash. The crowd sprinted four or five miles around the lake to get to where Jesus was, and they got there ahead of him. I'm trying to imagine this mass of people running, like looking like a zombie attack coming around the lake. But they were desperate for him, so desperate. Somehow they beat them on foot when they're going across this rather small lake. How long did it take us to get across when we were in Israel? 20 minutes, something like that? 30 minutes, I don't know. None of us remember. Apparently it was a very rejuvenating time for us. <laughs> so <laughs> we were singing, we were worshiping the Lord. So they get there, and all the locals are there, desperate to hear from Jesus. I wonder what the disciples thought at this point. Because if I was a disciple, I probably would have thought, it's okay. Jesus is going to get out of the boat, and he's going to tell the people, sorry, friends, the Lord bless and keep you. We're really tired. My people need a rest. We're going to, you guys stay here. We're just going to get back in the boat and go, we'll see you tomorrow. That's not what happened. <laughs> Jesus had a different plan. <laughs> so, Jesus looks at the crowd. He sees the masses of people waiting on shore. And he has compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Who is Jesus, brothers and sisters? The good shepherd. Can a good shepherd look at this mass of lost sheep and not want to take them under his wing? No. He is the good shepherd. And so Jesus sees that they don't have a shepherd, and that was true. The religious authorities of the day, the people that were supposed to be shepherding and loving and guiding and speaking true and abundant life over these people, had just tied them up in religious red tape. They were bound by legalism, by rules, by do this and do this and then God will be happy for you. And Jesus saw that they had no one to truly guide them. We see this in all of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, right? It's just one disappointment after another. These are the people that are supposed to be tending the flock. And so the shepherd sees lost, helpless, confused sheep. And what happens when sheep get lost? They wander. What else happens? They die. Sheep are stupid. Sheep are not smart. They can't guide themselves to water, to pasture, to safety from the elements. The shepherd looks and says, these sheep are lost and they're going to die or they're going to get eaten by the false teachers of the day. And so Jesus 
in his compassion, reaches out and gives them the first miracle of our story today. The first miracle of faithfulness, he gives them himself. Yeah, Jesus goes on to give them food, that's great. But don't miss this miracle of faithfulness. Jesus gives them more than physical food. He gives these physically impoverished and undernourished people spiritual nourishment and spiritual sustainment. He makes them spiritually wealthy, which is what they need. Yes, he fed 5,000 people loaves and fishes, which is beautiful, but guess what? The next day, they're gonna be hungry again. (laughs) It's not going to sustain them in the long run. And the truth is, most of these people probably could have skipped a meal. If you and I skip a meal, granted it's different times, but if you and I skip a meal, are we gonna die? Probably not. They're probably going to be okay. Hunger pains, yes, but that's not the sustainment they, they actually needed. The miracle is deeper. Jesus gives them the bread of life and the living water. He gives spiritually impoverished people the richness that they need to understand who God is calling them to be, his flock, and giving them the true hope that the religious authorities of the day were binding in red tape from them. This is a beautiful thing that the good shepherd does for the lost sheep. But this takes a while, and the disciples aren't great with that, right? Remember, it's been a long day. It's been more than a long day. It's been a long time for the disciples. So they've been promised a rest. They didn't get it. They've been listening to Jesus teach all day and probably doing ministry, and they're probably thinking, okay, it's getting late. I'm hungry. I know they're hungry. Where are we? There's nowhere around to get food. Come here. Thomas. Do, yeah, okay. Jesus. We don't know if you noticed the hour, but um, there are a lot of people here. So we think it's best if you probably send them off to like local villages in time for them to get there because we're not close to anything and get food, right? Good sound logical plan. It's what I would do. I don't think I would have been a very good disciple. And so the disciples have wrapped this plan up nicely and presented to Jesus in the most logical way possible. Jesus has other ideas. Don't we hate it when he does that? We have this great logical plan that's gonna give us life, that's gonna give other people life. Jesus, like I know this is from you, it's gonna be so good. And then we present it to the Lord and we're like, Lord, here's our prayer that's obviously in line with your will, be faithful. And he's like, no. I have a better plan. And we see that here. Jesus looks at them. And instead of sending them off, Jesus says to these disciples, you give them something to eat. Again, after reading this text this week, I realized I wouldn't have been a very good disciple. The disciples are exhausted. Let's not underestimate that. Think about yourself when you're exhausted. When Elijah was exhausted, he wanted to die, right? And then God gave him a nap and sent the ravens and brought him food. He was okay. The disciples are exhausted, brothers and sisters. They have been pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. They were promised a rest, and Jesus didn't give them that rest. (laughs) He does in his own way. But they, all they see is another day of ministry. They're going, okay, Jesus, 
I can't do this anymore. The crowds have been fed. You've been compassionate. Send them home and let's go. And Jesus has the audacity to look at them and go, you impoverished disciples, give the crowd something to eat. I think I would have been the first disciple to go off and yell at Jesus for quite a while, and it probably wouldn't be recorded in the Bible, but there's a reason that God made me who I am today and not to follow Jesus back then. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Can't you hear their question? I hear one of them as being sarcastic. <laughs> Should we go buy bread? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have all that money. Seven months, eight months of wages, definitely in our common purse as disciples, following Jesus pays really well. We'll get that out. One of them jaw-dropping being, you want us to do what? The other one trying to calm the disciples. No, it's okay. Jesus, if you want us to go pay 100, 200 denarii, we'll go do it. Okay. I just imagine all their different reactions, but I have to confess, I think I just would have been broken. I would have yelled. I would have been frustrated. And I might have cried. You know, I don't cry a lot, but I might have cried. The impossibles look at what, the disciples look at what Jesus just gave them as an impossible mission on top of their exhaustion. My guess is they're feeling overworked, underappreciated, and they're looking at this impossible feat that Jesus gave them going, Where are, where's your faithfulness, God? Because I need you. I'm tired, I don't want to do this anymore, and I can't do what you have just asked me to do. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if we're honest, if we feel that way with God a lot of the times. I'm tired, Jesus. I have been doing everything you've asked me to do. I don't know what more you want from me. I have been seeking you, I have been serving you, and I have been at my breaking point, and then you put this on my plate. What do you want from me, God? Because I cannot do it. And neither can I, brothers and sisters, neither can you, and neither could the disciples. It wasn't what they pictured as God's faithfulness. But he was faithful. And just because we couldn't do it and they couldn't do it doesn't mean Jesus couldn't do it. Jesus can. So the Lord steps in with the 12 and he says, okay, boys, what do we got to work with? And in their exhaustion and frustration, they go out to the crowds and they find what? Five loaves and two fish, which sounds meager, but if we take it out of our American concept and put it into the realistic concept of what it was, don't think loaves like what you and I are eating, like, oh, five loaves of Wonder Bread, this is great. Think tiny little flat pieces of bread, more like a breadstick or a roll that you and I, when we go to Olive Garden, we could pop like five any day. Two small fish. This is a packed lunch, probably for one person. This isn't something to feed a family, let alone feed 5,000. But the Lord steps up to the plate, and he says, watch what I can do. He goes to his faithful, miraculous work to care for his sheep. And he tells the people, he tells the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass in this desolate place. Do you hear echoes? Psalm 23. 
Close your eyes, brothers and sisters. It's okay, the people next to you are doing it too. The Lord has commanded the people to sit on the green grass in community groups in this quiet, desolate place. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. You can open your eyes. The people and the disciples might not have gotten the faithfulness from God that they anticipated or expected, but they got the faithfulness and the restoration of soul that they needed. So Jesus has prepped and prayed for the food. And then what does he do? He goes and he gives it to the people. Who does he give it to? Taking five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. Jesus did not hand the people something to eat. He gave it to the disciples to give the people to eat. Look for the deeper miracle again, people. Look for the deeper faithfulness on God's part. God had given the disciples an impossible mission, and then in his miraculous faithfulness, he gives them exactly what they need to do the impossible task he has given them to do. Could the Savior have easily gone out and distributed the food himself? You betcha. It's not that hard. But instead, Jesus shows us a greater example of faithfulness. He gives his exhausted and desperate disciples exactly what they need to do the mission that he has asked them to do. That is the demonstration of God's faithfulness that we see in this passage. God fed 5,000 people that day. But the disciples needed to obey the Lord. They needed to, to do what he had called them to do. They needed to be able to feed 5,000 people. So yes, he fed 5,000, but he gave 12 desperate and hungry men the spiritual things that they needed to be able to do what God had asked them to do. That is the miracle we see. God is living out his vow of faithfulness with his disciples here. Because the disciples couldn't do it on their own. Oh, I feel bad for the disciples. Sometimes I think we just look at them as these pathetic people, but I think it's you and I too. They were too broken. They were too tired. They were too young. They were probably too dumb and confused, to be honest. So are we sometimes. They were too weary to do what God had asked them to do, but in his faithfulness, Jesus stepped in and did the miracle and then gave them the supplies that they needed out of that miracle. They fed 5,000 people did it that day, but not of their own volition. They did it out of the power and the faithfulness that can only come from our perfect groom, Jesus Christ. And you can do it too. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but we need to remember that being a disciple of Jesus Christ, stepping into this marriage relationship with him, is not about being given a vow of faithfulness that will give us everything we want. It's about being given a vow of faithfulness that will give us everything we need to be who we're called to be and to do what we're called to do, to serve the Savior and to look more like him.
Where in your life are you tired? Where are you weary? Where are you frustrated and broken? Where do you find yourself beating your head against the wall, coming up the same thing over and over again? Because, brothers and sisters, that is the exact place in your life that I believe Jesus wants to breathe his faithfulness to you. That is the place he wants to give you what you need to do what he's called you to do, to be his sanctified bride. That's where he wants to give you what you need to be who he has called you to be on mission to the world. Where in your life do you need to remember today that Jesus Christ is the faithful groom and he is going to give you everything that you need in him? He has called us to do the impossible, brothers and sisters, but he is the one that gives us what we need to go out and do that impossible in his name. Nothing is impossible for God because he is faithful.